Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah in Portland. This is Dimity in Denver. And I just returned back to Portland a few days ago, Dim. Oh, uh, get, nice. Getting reset, resettled in after family vacation. Yes, it is. it was the summer of the road trip for the Mother Runners. Summer of the AMR road trip. Many miles on the road with four wheels, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I would say yeah. minivan, but you you all were in a, a test car. Um, we were in a test car. So where did you guys go? So we went to Southern Oregon, which um, some people's eyes may glaze over when they say that. But I say wipe away the glaze because it's so beautiful and just so varied and um, diverse and just just really stunning. And, um, you know, I've lived here in Oregon for 15 and a half years. And finally, Jack, my husband was like, okay, we have got to go see Crater Lake this summer. And so that was kind of the centerpiece that then I built the trip around. And um, a big shout out of thanks to Molly, my running partner, because I was like, okay, Molly, Jack wants to go to Southern Oregon for a vacation. Where should I go? And, and Molly spent part of her childhood uh in Oregon and and her her dad grew up here and everything so um so she had lots of good advice and just oh my goodness went to the coast to this town called Florence which has the largest sand dunes in the US I mean sand dunes are just kind of wild things Dim I don't know if you've I know you have sand dunes in Colorado have you ever seen those uh, I have not been to the ones in Colorado I've been to the ones in New Mexico where oh. yeah I mean, oh, sure. it's, it's, it's crazy you mm-hmm. feel like you're just in the middle of you know Lawrence of Arabia or something. I don't know, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Where's my camel? I mean, um, so, and the fact that they were so close to the 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 water made them, I don't know, almost more unusual that it, sure. because also they were right butted against um, verdant forests. And, and so I was like, wait, are those ferns and those fir trees growing in sand or does it turn into dirt or I can understand? And so, so the, uh, there was just a lot to do there. The twins went snowboarding. Sorry. Sorry, sandboarding. They went sandboarding, which is just like snowboarding, but it's on sand. Wow, and did you rent those? Or- we, we did. We rented those. And um, and they don't have bindings in the same uh, hard clip-in binding like a snowboard does, but they're soft. And so you can kind of do them in bare feet. And then it's kind of like a, just a neoprene thing that holds your feet on. And so it's so that you can pop out a whole lot easier. Sure. And, sure that sounds fun. Oh, it was really fun. And of course, you know, John, my little um, a- talented athlete, I mean, he just picked it right up and I feel badly though he's so lightweight that um it was like oh we need to give him you know like some bricks in his pocket or something so that so that gravity will have more effect on him give him a big shove down the hill right (laughs) right so um and there was great lake swimming there and um a friend of mine here in Portland had grown up there and she'd always talked about so I wanted to see it and then oh we went on a wildlife safari which was again a Molly suggestion and I bought a like living social voucher for it or something and leading up to it I thought oh my goodness we're just going to not enjoy this or I'm going to feel really badly for the animals oh no we all loved it and there was oh, <laughs> there was a part where you got to you could buy the you know little five dollar cup of animal feed and hold your hand out the window and they'd come up and you know I'm certainly not talking like that we fed tigers that way but um you know there were all sorts of kind of goat and and ram type creatures and and <laughs> the best was this emu had come up to Jack's side Jack was driving and it, um he holds it out and it pecked 
his hand um, and to get it, but it didn't hurt him, but it looked like it did. And he pulled his hand back and I, I never swear in front of my children. And I go, shit. <laughs> we should say, actually, there's a couple, uh, we dropped the S bomb a couple times on this podcast. So if you are just totally, um, if you just covered your child's ears, then you might want to listen to this in, in private. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my kids were just so shocked by that one. So anyway, so then the emu comes or emu, which have like yellow eyes and kind of these piercing mean yellow eyes or mean intention looking um so he comes up and and i hold my hand out and the, and then i think better of it i'm like oh, no, no no i'm not gonna do that and starts making this kind of like ooh, 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 sound and so i lean into jack's shoulder like just cower against jack's shoulder and my entire family is just howling with laughter and i am laughing too because i've learned that when i get panicked i laugh and um so, and all I'm thinking is, why isn't he driving? <laughs> and so I, the killer emu, he's going to get us. So, and then it turns out that I didn't, didn't find this out until we got back. I think I found it out two days ago that, um, the Jack actually then held some food sort of near me. So the emu stuck its head more into the car. <laughs> so the joke was lost on me because I had my eyes shut. I was cowering at Jack's shoulder. Um, wow. so, but it was just, it was very, very funny. So that was, that was definitely one of the high points of our trip and um went to crater lake the um there were some forest fires nearby and um so we were lucky the day before from the top of the crater you know the crater lake's main thing is this it's this astonishing blue color it's this this beyond description blue color and so the day before we got there you couldn't even see the water from up above which is the the mainly the only place you can look at it there's one place you can walk down to but um so it had cleared out somewhat but still we couldn't see everything quite clearly so it was um it was hazy i guess would be the best term for it but as a result also there were very few people there because the north entrance to the park was closed so it was kind of a trade-off um yeah those those forest fires are so intense mm -hmm. i mean so you know i mean they're i feel like they're mostly in the pacific northwest but i mean here in colorado i mean we feel them i mean my mm -hmm. throat my eyes my oh, the yeah. smoke it's crazy mm -hmm. how far it travels and you're just thinking if i feel this affected by it i mm -hmm. can't imagine actually you know my heart goes out to people who are Oh, living very close to it. Oh, I mean, and it would just, it gave kind of an eerie apocalyptic sense to it. I was um, talking to our producer, Alex, who just came back from hiking um, the PCT, part of the PCT in Washington state. And um, so, and they, he and his girlfriend got side, you know, they couldn't go any further because it was closed because of the, actually the biggest forest fire that's burning in the country right now. And so we were, um, at, when we were going from our lodging from Jack and my family was going from our lodging to go to Crater Lake and we had to be you know, rerouted. Um, it must've been like at a shift change and we were the only car. It was really early in the morning. We were the only car driving one direction and all the vehicles coming the other way were fire um, oh, personnel wow. and, wow. and, um, you know, they were going to their, you know, their seven o'clock shift or whatever, but I was just like, Oh, Jack, like, this is kind of creepy. Like, I feel like we're in a scene like from the road or the walking dead or something. I mean, it was, it was, um, uh, disturbing. And to, to think that people, you know, are living that existence day to day is, um, sure. kind of heartbreaking. Um, so then, Oh, we, um, 
also went, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, oh, we went to the Oregon Caves, which I blogged about. I had to overcome my um, claustrophobia that I'm convinced set in once I became pregnant and, and had those hormones affect me. And, um, oh, we got to see this amazing ranch, Jack. Um, um, we connected with a high school friend of Jack's who is now a manager of a 4,000 acre ranch along the Rogue River, which is in um, a city called Grants or a town called Grants Pass, Oregon. And it was just stunning, just so beautiful. And there was a zip line that the kids got to use there. And the property had been um, Ginger Rogers estate at one point. Huh. And so, and I guess it turns out that, you know, you know me, I had to look into the history, Dimity. Sure. Um, it turns out that um, during the, you know, kind of the golden age of, of Hollywood, it was very popular for stars to vacation in that part of Oregon. So um, Clark Gable, John Wayne, Ginger Rogers, bunch of people like that so it's like oh very interesting Fun. so yeah where then, did you stay there did you like rent a cabin or what did you like have one home base or did you move around no we we drove the only place that we stayed for ended up staying for two nights was in florence and then we were on the move every just one night of um, um you know a stay and beforehand i thought oh that's gonna be such a drag you know how many things are we gonna lose you know and the repacking and it ended up being working out really well and everybody was very self-sufficient with their own yeah. luggage it's to the a, right age honestly yeah. i mean that's what i feel like too like that happened with us too like nine and 12 you're 10 and 13 i mean it's mm-hmm. like there's just something about that age where they i mean that age where they could take care of themselves imagine that but you know like i don't know and there's some pride in that too i mean i know at least for my for ben and mm-hmm. probably your younger kids of being like oh you know i'll help i'll help unpack the car i'll pack mm-hmm. up the cooler i'll do this you know yeah, like yeah they, they really enjoyed it right right yeah and it was um i mean certainly there were a couple times they were like uh yeah daphne did you want that pillow that you brought from home you know and your sweatshirt yeah. or did you just want to leave that for you know the next family that's going to stay in this room but um yeah no it was great and we ended up um because of the forest fires and road closures we ended up um bailing on a second night in this one place and we so we added ashland oregon to the itinerary and i was really pleased about that because i'd want to see it ashland has a very famous shakespeare festival and um it's just kind of this intriguing um hippie outpost in southern oregon and um so that was super fun to see that it was kind of like the some of the cities that you and i have um experienced as we travel around for book parties and things like that i was like oh you know fun shops to go into i need dimity here by my side so well, a little boutiques little boutiques yeah. along with as they're reciting romeo and juliet and <laughs> right. smoking their patchouli <laughs> right. um yeah well yeah um, you know here in oregon they they smoke more than patchouli and i was like okay i mean that was another thing. I mean, just the whole, uh, the whole, it's right close to California. So they get a lot of marijuana tourists, or I'm sure there's some hipper term for that. And, uh, no, you know, that's, that's the term, yeah. you know, and so then you sign into, you know, so here we were staying in, what is that? I don't know, six different hotels and all of them you have to sign, you know, and then they have their policy. And I'm like, look, there's the word marijuana in black and white at an establishment. <laughs> and I felt yeah. a little bit like an old fogey, but you know, I mean, then, the kid, you know, and we had like one hotel we stayed in in Roseburg, um, which I have to give a shout out to is um, the hometown of one of those three American young Americans who um, thwarted that terrorist att- attack in Europe. Oh, and, Mor- and um, yeah, the Moroccan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so he um, Roseburg is his hometown. So we stayed there last Monday night, 
And um, so, you know, there was a huge marijuana dispensary, medical marijuana dispensary across the street from our hotel. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's just like, okay, it's literally part of the landscape. And, you know, we, we didn't partake in it. And I don't judge people who do, but I just was like, okay, you know. <laughs> do, they, do they, I mean, what, remind me what the status is in Oregon. Is it, is it legal for so, everything or is it just medical? No. So, well, they're kind of revising the rules. And who would have thought that we would talk about this on another Mother Runner podcast? But, but, um, uh, so r- currently, it, uh, as of July 1, it is uh, legal to possess marijuana here in Oregon, but it's odd because they have not opened just the regular pot stores. So the only place theoretically to get it is at medical marijuana dispensaries, which are as ubiquitous as Starbucks here. And I'm not, I, I, I take that back. There are far more medical marijuana dispensaries than there are Starbucks around oh, yeah, here. Well, so that's, I mean, that's why, like when you're saying it's part of the, I mean, that's, that is part of the landscape here in Denver. I mean, yeah. you know, in certain parts of town, you know, you're just like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh, I've, uh, I've I've thought about whatever they call it, Mile High, or I mean, there's just like some of the names. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, see, of course I can't come up with any off the top of my head. Oh, see, but, but I love that. I love the creativity of the names, and I feel like I want to like keep a database, or I'm sure there's some website that's been started of for the clever names, and um, um, you know, I mean, gosh, how'd they ever come up with those clever names? <laughs> <laughs> they sat around and smoked pot and, and put on their thinking caps. Um, so, um, yeah, but um, as a little side note to that, sometimes Molly and I like to do kind of theme runs and we'll like, and kind of specific to Portland. So we'll, there's these little free libraries that people will put out in front of their house where, you know, kind of take a book, leave a book, that sort of thing. And so sure. we'll do runs where we can see how many of those we can see or street murals, which I've sometimes Instagram pictures of. And um, lately I've been thinking, oh yeah, we need to go in a medical marijuana dispensary <laughs> route <laughs> um, i don't need those instagram pictures but yeah yeah because uh, because we would sure sure find a lot of them so um anyway yeah so but you are not, as in colorado you are um you know you're not allowed to smoke it outdoors and you're not um allowed to smoke it in hotel rooms you're only allowed to um partake in it in private homes so you know that's the whole signing when you check into a hotel you have to be like oh yeah you know i'm not gonna smoke marijuana in your hotel room um, right. and, uh, you know, I don't think I looked like that was my intent at all. Um, so, um, anyway, but, um, not even sure how I got on that topic, but it was definitely, um, omnipresent on, on our tour of Southern right. Oregon. But yeah. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. And it was just, um, this will sound, um, perhaps a little bad, but I love being quote unquote forced to spend time with my family. Oh, forced family fun. That doesn't feel bad. You've got to be forced. Fa- I mean, that's part of it, right? I mean, that's part of why a road trip is so great is because you're in this contained vehicle and you've got to interact for better yeah. or for worse, right? Oh, yeah. And so, um, I mean, I will I will admit that there was not a ton of enjoyment in the van. There was a lot of bickering, a lot, a lot of bickering. But then when we would stop to do activities, because, you know, from everything from, oh, I'll walk the twins over to the indoor pool before anyone else is up. You know, and so it's like sure. we, we don't have an indoor pool at our house. You know, so yeah. that's nice. Oh, yeah, just fun stuff. Yeah, yeah and absolutely. so then you know, oh, let's go on a jet boating tour of the Rogue River. You know, I mean, yeah. and then go, you know, go window shopping in Jacksonville and all these things. And you know, I mean, yes, we do family activities, but you know, maybe that's a two or three hour berry picking excursion, and then the kids, you know, scurry down to the basement to play on the Wii, and and I needle point outside. So I mean, it just 
sort of being together all that time and then having, you know, dinner and restaurants, which by their, by their setup takes longer than the, you know, 10 or 12 minutes that we spend eating, you know, the dinner that I've cooked here at home. So, sure. um, yeah, no, that's part of, that's absolutely, I think that's honestly the most valuable thing, you know, mm-hmm. and the, mem- the, the memories that come out of it. Right. And the oh, cool yeah. thing is, you know, 10 years or 15 years down the line, you guys will be talking about it and the kids will remember something that you don't even recall. Oh yeah. And it's, it'll be like, you know, I mean, when Ben went to Washington DC, all he cared about was the revolving door in the hotel. Like, I mean, I was like, okay, we can go to Denver and look at revolving doors and not spend, you know, thousands of dollars to get to DC. But, but that's what, I love that, you know, yeah. because it's like these random things and you're like, oh wow, you really remember that. And then, you know, and then John will remember something and Phoebe will remember something else. And oh yeah. Yeah. There was that really one, fun. one of the, um, um, hippies in in Ashland. He had a um, a kitten on a leash, and the kids were just fascinated by the kitten on the leash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? like screw the caves. Let's talk about the kittens on a leash, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah that's yeah. the fun part. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, screw uh, not screw your vacation, but we got to move on because we've got a long podcast ahead, and we've got yeah. an awesome, awesome guest. Um, but before we bring her on, we've got a fun announcement. We are starting to plan for our hashtag BRF week, which is Best Running Friends Week. So here's a little announcement about that. Hi, this is Katie. I'm a runner on the outskirts of Denver, Colorado, and I wanted to talk a little bit about my best running friend, Julie. Julie and I met about 10 years ago through our local women's only running club, the Columbines, and we've been running together ever since. And the thing I like most about Julie is that she will show up to run, rain or shine, no matter the distance, trail or road, she just likes to get out there. And we have this tradition every year on the first day of school, we always meet for a run as soon as we drop the kids off. So we're getting ready for BRF week at AMR. If you have a tribute to your best running friend that you'd like to share, create a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us at runmother at gmail.com. And that's um, Katie, who is featured in at least one of our books. Um, isn't she, Dimity? She... Oh, yep. Yeah, she's the one that missed. Uh, she was in Tales from Another Mother Runner. She is the one that missed the 30-hour cutoff at Leadville. She's my... My ultra friend. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Yes. So to put her in kind of a context. And um, so now we're going to be talking with Carrie Cheadle, and she is a certified sports psychologist practicing in Petaluma, California. She works on the performance of teams, organizations, and individual athletes and exercisers. Carrie is also the author of On Top of Your Game, Mental Skills to Maximize Your Athletic Performance. And she blogs at CarrieCheadle.com. And we will include a link in the post so you can see how to spell her last name. So welcome, Carrie. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So let's start with, tell us about yourself as a runner. It looks like maybe you favor trails over road. I do. I um, it, it took me a while to sort of um, accept that <laughs> that I really enjoy trail running more so than, um, than road running. And I kind of should have known that. I mean, my background really was, I did a lot of um, rock climbing and backpacking. So I've always had a, you know, a really deep sort of love and connection to nature. So, um, you know, I... I struggled with the idea of running on trails, um, <laughs> almost feeling like I wasn't quite enjoying the being in that the moment of nature as much as I was running, racing past it. But then um, oh, okay. <laughs> I realized it's it's just um, one of the things I really enjoy about trail running versus road running is that it I have to stay mentally sharp um, and in the moment because there's more terrain to navigate. And I really enjoy that aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you live in a beautiful part of the country for trail. Running. I do. Yeah, I really do. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's great. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, your professional background? How did you end up as a mental skills coach? That's what you call yourself. Yeah, that's a, um, it's a great question. It's an interesting question. I, my undergraduate degree was in psychology and I thought I wanted to go kind of the traditional route of um, going into therapy and being a therapist. And then as I literally, as I was walking across the stage at my graduation to receive my diploma, I realized that that's that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and I really wanted to try and figure out how to, um, how to work with people to help them accomplish their goals and work with people that were, um, you know, that were trying to work towards achieving something and giving them the kind of the skills and the tools and confidence to believe in themselves. But I had no idea what that looked like. And so I ended up moving to Tahoe and, um, through my own sport experiences, started to recognize some of the psychology of performance with um, with climbing and with snowboarding and also with getting injured and coming back into my sports. And at that same time, my mom um, actually was looking to get her master's degree in counseling and she was at a university and she saw a brochure for sports psychology and she picked it up and she was like, hey, I got this for you. I thought you might be interested. And I was like, what is this? This is amazing. <laughs> and immediately went to their first open house and signed up. And, um, and I've been working with athletes ever since. That's, that's, oh, that's so, so nice. Your mom can still have that effect on you even after you know, you've moved out of the yeah. nest. <laughs> and so do you work with the middle of the pack athletes or is it mostly podium placers or kind of describe your current like clientele roster? Yeah, it, you know, it's really um, both. I really get to um, work with the whole range of athletes. I think the assumption sometimes is that that I would only work with elite athletes or professional athletes and people who are the goal is the podium. But I actually get a lot of mid-pack um, racers that, you know, really it's um, whether it's my competitive recreational athletes all the way to my professional and elite athletes competing, you know, nationally, internationally, everybody's working towards trying to accomplish their goals and and perform to their potential. And we all have ways that we kind of sabotage ourselves and get in our own way. So no, no matter where they're at, there's things that we can work on. Um, so I really get a lot, quite a bit of, um, you know, many of my athletes are, are, are mid-pack finishers that are just working towards um, accomplishing their own goals. Sure, sure. Well, I saw you um, talk about the science of suffering at a Training Peaks coaching summit recently. And uh, so, first of all, the science of suffering has got kind of a nice um, alliteration to it. And then it's also got a lot of intrigue to it, right? Like, ooh, yes. there's science behind it. And your first kind of thing that you brought up was the, the difference of pain um, versus suffering. Can you talk a little bit about the difference, um, first yeah. of all? Yeah, so pain, um, you know, they – they feel the same <laughs> to the person that's experiencing experiencing it. But pain is really, um, you know, anytime you're feeling pain, it's your body's way of trying to signal you to something that's going on. Um, and so your brain is, you know, really trying to protect your body. And it's and so we're wired to do that. We're wired to um, feel that pain so that we avoid that pain in order for our survival. So at some point, you're going to be pushing your body in a way that is uncomfortable and sometimes very uncomfortable. And that's what I would sort of consider suffering. And um, what's interesting is sometimes what I find with my athletes that maybe didn't 
um, have a, an athletic background growing up, sometimes they have a hard time delineating the difference between what's pain that's pain I need to pay attention to and, and make sure I stop so I don't hurt myself and what's pain that is suffering that that it do, is not going to harm me and I can actually work through it. I also find that sometimes I think people confuse, and this is just my my couch psychology talking here, um, that sometimes people confuse pain with with boredom, and that at, particularly I was thinking about a, a long run recently, and and that toward the end of it, it's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable, and it's like, no, that's not quite it. It's just that I'm bored, and that that I want it to be over. Yes, you're absolutely right. Like once you, especially there's longer runs where. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The pain and boredom sort of get um, enmeshed and they don't mm-hmm. really recognize that the, um, and it's good to be able to have that kind of awareness because there's tools that you can go to, to help get you through the boredom, which might be different. Some of them might actually overlap, but they might be different than the tools that would get you through actual pain. So the pain you're feeling there is sort of the boredom is psychological pain that then yeah. can manifest as physical pain. Right, right. And then when, when should you kind of lean into the suffering or the pain when, if you're say striving for a really big goal? Yeah. I, you know, there's a certain point where, um, when you're really at your threshold, you're really pushing yourself to your body's limit or, or getting close to it. There's a certain point where you, um, it is more effective to tune into the physical feelings that you're feeling versus trying to use tools that avoid feeling that. Um, mm-hmm. It just, at, at that point of suffering, you, there is no avoiding it. There's, it's, you're kind of at your peak and that it's not possible to avoid what you're feeling. So sometimes the tools of trying to um, avoid it, it, you might avoid it for like a second and then you're right back in it. So it's not and then you're feeling it sometimes even more intensely when you do it that way. So say you're, um, you know, you're running and your legs are burning and you're really feeling it and your body's screaming at you to stop and you try to do some kind of tool that helps you avoid that feeling and then you feel it again. Sometimes that when you come back to it, the that because of that psychological piece, you feel it even more intensely. So it's not necessarily an effective tool. So in those circumstances, you really want to, you know, sometimes you want to just dive into the actual quality. And this takes practice. Like I, you know, I would have people practicing during some of their training runs to see what feels like because it feels, um, it's, it doesn't come naturally to to everybody and it doesn't feel comfortable to everybody either to actually like really dive into the pain and look at what is the quality of the pain and where is the burning and what does it feel like and what's happening in my body and then focusing on sort of the breathing and the technique and things that have to do with the body and the pain that you're feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was um, trying to run my fastest marathon ever which ended up being my fastest my PR um I would I asked a lot of people who I knew had achieved their goal of 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 their fastest marathon and uh, so many of them talked about kind of moving toward that suffering and and putting their arms around it and really embracing it rather than skirting it and and trying to push it off and and before it happened before I tried that I was like 
what are what are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hugging my pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is not a warm fuzzy. But that is one thing that you talked about, um, Carrie, in the in the summit was thinking about pain in a positive way because your perception of it affects your tolerance, right? So if you can yes. say, I hurt because I'm gonna freaking nail this goal or I'm gonna get this workout or I'm gonna get this time or I'm gonna get stronger, or whatever it happens to be. Instead of just being like, it hurt, it's hurt, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah, to really kind of, because that, um, you know, whatever that perception is, there's an immediate um, emotional reaction that goes with it. And that emotional reaction is not, you you know, you, you have, we have more um, choice over that emotional reaction than we realize, but it takes practice. And whatever that reaction is, it can either be beneficial to our performance or detrimental. So that, you know, when you're re- your automatic perception and um, of when that pain comes is, is to be afraid of it, there's a, you know, a, the emotional reaction that you have that comes with fear has a physiological component that goes with it as well that's not necessarily beneficial for your performance. Whereas if you're perception is to really embrace it and and know oh here it is i'm i'm ready for this i can do this i'm going into the pain cave and every step i take makes me stronger your emotional reaction to that is much much different than that fear of it mm-hmm. it's it's hard to get over that fear though isn't it i mean it- it is. Yeah. And it's, it's different for different people. And that, that's actually been something that's been very fascinating for me in the work that I do with my athletes is not everybody has that. Um, but and the people that do for some people, it's a it's a very it's a very real fear. And I think people that don't have that fear can't re- understand that and can't wrap their heads around it. So I see a real continuum of of that um, kind of fear of that suffering and tapping into that. Sure. I feel like I was able to come over, like, I, I, I have that fear. I don't know if I'm scared of it. I just, I just said, I'm just not interested in doing it. You know, mm-hmm. like it's yes. just, it hurts too much for the outcome that I want, which is, you know, middle of the pack, you know, I'm not a podium finisher. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, the, the one time that I did that I do feel like I was like, I just pushed and pushed and pushed was when I was in rowing, when I had a team and I knew that I had three women around me pushing as hard as they could. And I wanted to do it for them, you know, mm-hmm. and for me, of course, too. But I mean, it was it was kind of a, the team, I think, aspect brings it to another level a little bit more naturally and easily. Is that is that I mean, and I guess even like if I thought about being on like a cycling team, you know, and yeah. I wanted to hang with the peloton, like, yeah, I can see myself pushing myself harder that way than just me being out on a run doing a tempo mile, right? Yeah, absolutely. There is a um, a pretty significant component that comes with our ability to push ourselves when we're with other people versus not. Some there are. I do have some athletes that even solo, they're really able to do that. But I would say significantly more. Um, you know, and actually, the very first the very first research, like lab research in sports psychology, which was in like the the late 1850s. I can't remember what year now, but it was the late or no, yeah, yeah, I think it was the late 1800s. And um, the very first experiment was done with cyclists and they wanted to try and figure out why was it that two cyclists riding together could come in with faster times versus one of them alone. So it's, so from the very beginning, people kind of recognized that we're, we have this ability to push ourselves harder when we're with other people versus when we're out there on our own. And I think it's, um, 
I, what I find is I, that sometimes the rate of perceived exertion is different um, when you were out there with other people versus when you're solo. Oh, most certainly. I mean, we're, well, my goodness, when, when my, you know, BRF is there by my side, it feels so less hard than it does when I'm out there just trying to keep up that intensity by myself. Yeah. yeah and I mean, you know, it's why we all turn in better times in a race, even when we, you know, even if we go out to do a workout and say, oh, I'm going to run my fastest, you know, five miles I can. It, I, I'd be surprised if it's ever as fast as you can when it's in a well, well orchestrated race. Yeah. Yeah, you have those yes. those goals of just trying to get the people in front of you, which, you know, you know, as soon as you have a distraction or a reason to bring on the pain, you know, like, oh, I want to pass her, or I want to beat that guy or whatever, then it feels a little bit less, it's less um, internal, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you're, I mean, really, it's your, your focus is, and that's a big part of it, is when you're just suffering and you're, you're in your head and there isn't a set goal that you're working towards or there isn't that external thing to pull your focus out and help you remember your why of why you're doing it and and what it is you want to accomplish you're just in your head and when you're in your head that's all you all you can focus on is how much how much you're hurting and how much you want to stop (laughs) (laughs) tell your head to shut up shut up like shut up well so one of the one of the tactics that you talked about you know we talked a little bit about reframing um, pain in a positive way. And then you also talked about race goals, um, you know, so both for overall performance and then handling the suffering because kind of having a reason to do that. So can you talk about how important are race goals and then also appropriate ones? Because I sometimes feel like the only, you think a race goal and you think I got a PR, I got to, you know, I've got to really, you know, go, 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 go. And sometimes that's not always the most appropriate one, right? Yes, absolutely. And I get that with a, a lot of my endurance athletes where there, it's almost like this, the like the perception is that you always have to <laughs> PR like yeah. no matter what the race is no matter what the conditions are you, like it doesn't matter people are sort of defining their success on based on whether or not they were faster this time than last time and that and as you know i mean there's there's so many so many different factors in, that come into play um, on on race day, both personally for yourself and and what's you know going on in your life and and your body, as well as what's going on in the environment and on the race course. So it's um, I try and I you know although you want to take in some of that information because it's information that you can use in order to um, kind of you know, to, to take into consideration as you move forward from there and want to improve on your goals and want to, um, you know, get faster times. But it's, I also try to avoid comparing race to race because of that, because we have this tendency to then feel negatively about ourselves if, well, last time I ran this and this time I ran slower, even though Mm -hmm. it was windier and the conditions were different and you just got over a cold. So, Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's smart to think about that idea of, of appropriate goals and what is it to, that you want to focus on. So this idea of kind of suffering and goals and goal setting um, is, you know, I, um, if you don't have something specific that you're really striving towards in, in the race, that you're really trying to get towards a certain time or, um, or maybe even feel a certain way during that portion, um, it's, it's hard to continue to push yourself when you don't have that specific thing that you're working towards. That's when we can almost 
sometimes write ourselves a little permission slip of like, well, you know, mm-hmm. I can walk, I can walk the, um, I can, I can walk at the water stops or I can, well, I'll just, you know, walk this next mile and then see how I feel when, you know, when you, you know, in your heart of hearts and you know, in your gut, you are physically capable, but you've just sort of written yourself that permission slip because you didn't have that thing that you were really working towards that was important to you. That was your why for why, you know, you wanted to do that race and what you wanted to get out of it. So what I do with my athletes is sometimes people will feel, um, more anxiety when they set a specific goal for a race. So we kind of sometimes have to work through that of um, that fear that comes sometimes of, well, what if I say this time and then I don't make it? And what does that mean about me? Um, And, and so we sort of have to work through that. And one of the things I do is have really, so if you have that outcome goal of like, here's the goal I'm really working towards, I also break it down. You also want to break it down into, um, performance goals and process goals in the race. So in order to get that outcome goal, what is it that you need to be doing in these different moments in order to make that happen? So, you know, sometimes the goals of the race might be, I'm making sure that I'm fueling every, you know, certain amount of time and they're setting their watch to it and doing it. And that might be one of the goals that we gauge your success on. So did you, you know, complete your fueling strategy? Yes. And by doing that and focusing on that, that's going to be one of the factors that's going to help you get to the finish line in the time that you want. So you really want to kind of have that combination of both, um, of both the outcome goal that you're striving for, as well as what what do you need to do in order to make that happen? Right. And th- those goals don't sound quite as sexy. It's not like the type no. of thing that you'd brag on Monday morning when you go to the office and be like, yeah, I totally stuck to my fueling I strategy. And your, your coworkers will be like, huh? It's, did you, did you eat, did you see the Danish at the front desk? You know? Yes, like, it's so true. It's so hard too, because people who aren't in the sport or even people who are in the sport, they're always going to, so how'd you do? Did you win? Yeah. It's just yeah. like yeah. always the first, did you do better than last time? What was, did you PR? So we mm-hmm. have that tendency to always view our success through that definition. And so that's, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a really important thing to work on. And you're right. It's not sexy like at all. To go, well, I, you know, I reframed all my negative thoughts. What do you think about that? Exactly. <laughs> They'll be like, yeah, don't talk to Carrie. She's a total run nerd. <laughs> so, and, and you write about goal sabotage on, on your website and, and how fear might be holding a person back from striving for her goals. Yeah. So, you know, what tips do you have for people who hold back? Like, how do you realize you can do more than you think you can? I, you know, part of it really is, um, part of it is being okay at sometimes failure is a part of performance. Um, and to, and to sort of take away this negative connotation. So what I see people do is, um, they, they steer clear from setting goals because they're afraid, um, what if I put it all out there and I don't accomplish my goal? So sometimes they'll either not set the goal at all or they'll set a goal, but they'll, and they don't even know that they're doing this. It's not necessarily something that's consciously being done that, you know, something will happen where they'll create a situation where there can be a reason why they don't know if they had put it out all out on the line, what would have happened? So it could be like, Oh, you know what? Well, I didn't, I didn't hydrate enough that day and, you know, that probably affected my race. So it's a, it's a way that 
it's, we do it to kind of protect our ego. Mm -hmm. So this goal sabotage that happens, like we don't always recognize that we're doing it. And I think the other thing that comes into play with that, the other thing I talk about with my athletes um, and in, in when I speak is, um, and I talk about it in my book, the idea of secret goals and that a lot of us have these secret goals that we are holding onto in the back of our minds and that those are the goals that we're gauging our success on. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I, I, you've got your stated goal, which is like the goal that you tell Carrie, you're like, oh, you know, well, it's, I, I'm going to feel really good if I finish mid pack. Like that's my goal for this race. But your secret goal is actually, if I'm not in the top third or if I'm not in the top 10, I'm going to be pissed and I'm going to be, <laughs> and, and that's my real goal. That's my secret goal that I'm not telling you. And the reason that's so important is the secret goal is the goal that we gauge our success on and and the goal that we then um, create the story about after our race. And that story that we, we create after the race is the one that gets carried forward into the next race and might be part of the reason why we then have some, some goal sabotage. So with the secret goal, you really have to look at um, is my secret goal – my real goal that I want to go for, but I'm afraid to say it. Um, and I'm afraid to, to kind of really go for it. Cause what if I don't get it or is the stated goal, the real goal. And you have to accept that that's where you're at and that that's a worthy goal, that there's nothing wrong with that goal, that that's a great goal to go after as well. So you kind of have to figure out what the real goal is. And are you ready to either accept that that the stated goal is the real goal, or are you ready to commit to what you need to do in order to get that secret goal? Do you, do you, do you have any, um, like after a race, whether it went well or it went badly, you didn't get your goal, you blew up, whatever. Do you, um, have your clients like download it all? I mean, and maybe they probably call you and talk to you, but I mean like write things down so that they can go back because I mean, that's something that I tell people to do and I try to do myself and just because then, cause I don't race that often. So six months later I'm lining up, you know, for another half marathon and I'm like, wow, I can't even remember what went well in the last race, you know? So yes. if I have something that I can look back on and say, oh, I fueled this at this point, I pushed hard here, I felt crappy here, whatever. Do you, do you have people do something like that? I do. Like I really recommend it for athletes. And the, the one that I have them do is it, um, it's uh, after, so after every race and it's um, kind of a post-race reflection. And you look at like, what were my goals? How did I do towards my goals? What went well? What would I change? Um, and what did I learn that I want to carry forward? And usually that's a supplement to maybe a log that they're already doing with, um, you know, what their training was and their hydration and their fueling. Because you're right, like, you know, depending on, you, well, even if you're racing more often than that, you're going to forget. Um, and it's really powerful sometimes to have all of that written out to not only be able to go back and look at it and go, oh, yeah, this, I did this last time and that really worked for me. But you can also, over time, end up seeing patterns that maybe you wouldn't necessarily recognize um, without having it laid out in that, in that way. So it's a, um, and the other kind of powerful thing and the reason I have athletes do it is the way our brains um, kind of catalog information and and hold on to memories, that you're more likely to sort of encode a memory in your brain if you have some kind of big emotional reaction. So if you have a race and at the end of your race you feel disappointed and you're upset about how the race went, that 
when you have that emotion, it tends to generalize it to the entire experience Um, because your brain likes to kind of put things into categories. So now your brain might be like, oh, that marathon bad (laughs) instead of like, (laughs) you know, when there's so many things that happened, you know, from your training, you know, to your prep the night before and your more, you know, there's so many different things that that happen in a race that you, it's just, um, you don't want to label it as just good or bad. So that's the other reason why I really have them write it out. Like, no matter how shitty your race was, yeah. something went well. And, yeah. and it's important to recognize that. You got to unpack it a little bit. Yeah. No, I think that that's exactly. really smart. Of course, now I'm saying, I, of course, I tell people to do it. It's like strength training. I tell people to do it. I kind <laughs> of do it myself. And then I, you know, but I'm, I'm going to do a, a half marathon uh, at the end of September that I, I, I rarely go back and do the same race twice. It's just not my thing. Um, but I'm going back to one, and now I'm like, dang it, that I didn't write anything down. Uh, like, yeah. I want to remember no, about the hill. Did you not? Uh, did you not blog about it? I may have. I'm going to go back and look. It's a bear, bear, the bear creek chase or something. Bear chase. Oh, because oh, that's what I love, you know, about about blogging. And Carrie, I'm sure you yeah. find the same thing. That so, sometimes they'll be like, oh, sweetness. Way back then in 2011, I wrote about yep. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah, <laughs> you can go on my website. There, I think I have those worksheets on my website. The post race evaluation. So you should go check it out. You can download it and write after the next race. (laughs) I will. I will. Yeah, no, you have a ton of worksheets on your website. They're definitely super. I was looking before we got on the call today. So definitely check those out at carriecheetle.com. But there's kind of a catch-22. So here we're talking like leaning into the pain and, you know, and setting goals and not letting up and all these kind of things. But then you were really talking about relaxing too. Like relaxing is a big part of getting to what you want to get to, you know, at the finish line. Yeah. So, so why is that so important? You know, when, um, the more physical tension you are carrying, the more intensified your feeling of pain is going to be. And, you know, when, when I talk about sort of relaxing and how can you relax as you're in action, um, it's, you're, we're looking at sort of relaxing the body and relaxing the mind to, you know, not that you're like, you know, relaxed, like I'm about to go to bed, relaxed, but that you're, um, you're not contributing excessive tension that's going to interfere with the way your body needs to perform. So, um, you know, it's, this is something that, and it, you know, it comes into play with running too, but it, especially with sports that have fine motor skills where, um, there's, if there's an excess of tension, muscular tension, that there's going to be tension in muscle groups that will interfere with the muscles that need to be working in order to execute the action. And the same thing is true for, for running as well and for any sport. So, and not only that, but the more tension you feel, the more intensified your pain is going to feel. So that's one of the things that that can be, um, you know, so it does, it feels like the strange, like we, you want me to d- dive into the suffering, but you also want me to relax. Like <laughs> this is really confusing. So and so, I mean, and it is hard because you're running, right. But you know, I mean, I think, you know, you know, you relax your shoulders and you see people shake yeah. out their arms and, you know, and you talked about having your exhale be one beat longer than your inhale, which I think yeah. is just a really nice, like little pocket tip you can put in your little key pocket of your shorts, your running shorts, you know, like, yeah. one beat longer, one beat longer, just when you, you know, when you're not breathing so hard, working so hard. But I mean, how, what are some other ways that you can kind of just really like think about relaxing when you're running? Because it is kind of an oxymoron. Yeah. I think, um, the other thing I'll have people do is, is, um, 
during different times on the course. I, sometimes I'll even have them set their, their watch to it, or they might do it at certain markers. They'll tune into um, relaxing their hands, relaxing their face, and breathing. So it's like a mantra that I have with a lot of my endurance athletes of just relax your hands, relax your face, breathe. Because we don't realize sometimes how much tension we're holding in those areas. And when you can kind of shake out your hands and realize, oh, wow, I was holding a lot of tension in my face and Mm -hmm. like, and then just, and then breathing, which can help slow things down. Um, A lot of times that is enough of a signal to the rest of the body to go, whoo, okay, where else am I holding tension? I don't need to, to be holding. Same with the dropping the shoulders is another really good one for runners. It's like, you, you know, slowly they start creeping up over time and like, Ooh, okay, those don't need to be up there. I can relax. I can relax those shoulders. Um, so that's one I, that's a nice go to, um, for running. And then, um, you know, a lot of it too, you know, the, the things that, the thoughts that we are feeding ourselves um, and the, um, you know, the self-talk that we have has a very big impact on how we feel emotionally and our emotions have a big impact on whether or not we are going to increase or decrease that muscular tension that in the, you know, are we carrying more tension than we need to? So really paying attention to the, what are we thinking in these moments? And so I'll even have athletes break down, their race and look at what are those critical moments where you know you're more likely to feed the monster than feed the athlete. So it's one of the things I talk about in the Mm -hmm. book is like, so each of us on, on each of our shoulders, we have a little monster on one shoulder Mm -hmm. and a little athlete on the other. And whichever one we feed is the one that gets stronger. So in those moments, you know, when your body's screaming at you to stop, is that a time you're going to you tend to feed the monster and what do you need to do in that moment in order to feed the athlete? Because the, those thoughts have a, a direct impact on, on your emotion, which has an impact on that, that physical and mental tension. Sure. So you feed, how do you feed the athlete? I mean, positive mantras, right? Like I am strong. That's a good I've question. Got this. Yeah. Yeah, screw, so it's really... screw running. I'm bigger than this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why the hell am I out here? Oh, I guess I'll just finish it. Right. I, it won't last forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's a really great question because I get asked that a lot, actually. I'm like, well, is it bad to have negative thoughts? And really, it it depends. Like some people would say yes. and I, But I actually say it, it depends on your perception of what that thought is. Like, um, So with feeding the athlete, it's, it's sort of um, – you know, so here's an example of one that some people might technically define as negative, but works really well for me. So if I'm, you know, training for something and I need to get out on a run and it's raining and I'm like, I just don't want to go out and run in the rain. My mantra in that moment that I say to myself is you're not made of sugar. Get your ass outside. Like, (laughs) so technically maybe people would say it's kind of negative. But for me, my associated, as soon as I say that to myself, it's like, yeah, I'm not made of sugar. Let's do this. This is fun. I like running in the rain. So it's, um, so it, you know, feeding the athlete, it it is very powerful to have those, um, affirming positive statements that are spoken as if it's already true. So like the statements of like, I'm strong, um, I'm, I'm ready for this, you know, kind of going into your race. Like I've prepared, I'm ready for this. I trust my training. I know I can do this. You know, those are really powerful feeding the athlete statements. Um, but sometimes feeding the athlete too is, is focusing on, um, you know, in those moments when you're suffering and thinking, if I, you know, breathe and stride, breathe and stride. So it's, it's, it can be facilitative, um, you know, facilitative statements 
are can be feeding the athlete in the same way as those really positive affirming statements. Sure. And then how about also I read somewhere, it might have been the New York Times, that um, speaking to yourself in the third person in a race or a tough workout can be very effective. So I did that when I, in my um, marathon last fall where I requalified for Boston, I, I, you know, sounded like, you know, Donald Trump or something the way I would, I would think Sarah is strong or Sarah's got this, Sarah can keep striving, that type of thing. I mean, so is that just total pompous or uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it depends on who's doing it and whether or not it's pompous but um no really it's like it depends on whether you think it it is or not like um if you do that you know because there are some people that sort of have that perception of of you know you'll hear people just your friends talking about like oh really did you just talk about yourself in the third person (laughs) like yeah yeah (laughs) I hang out, when I hang out with Kanye West, yes. he does a lot too. Yeah, but you know, it's um, so what I would do, what I do with athletes sometimes is to say, try it, try it in a training, and see how how see if that feels stickier to you. Sticky meaning like, ooh, that really connects. Like mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. that works well for me. So um, for me. I tend to, um, you know, because some people would say you should use I statements. For me, it's more effective for me to say. Um, to, you know, like you've got this, you can do this. And so, and actually sometimes I'll switch back and forth. So I, that's the thing that I like is, um, having another tool in your toolbox, because sometimes you'll go to grab one and you're like, that's not working. And, and then maybe you'll try like, Carrie, you so have this. And it's like, Ooh, yep. That's what I needed to hear in that moment. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, our association with it might feel a little bit different. So, you know, there might be a little, another little voice in the back of your head that's like, no, I can't, I can't do this. I don't believe myself. But hearing it in the third person, sometimes the perception is that it's coming from someone else. It's coming externally Mm -hmm. and it might feel different. So it's definitely something worth playing with and seeing how it works for you. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of feels authoritative, you know, like someone else you know, a voice from above saying, Sarah can do this, you know? And you're like, yeah. oh, well, I just self-generated that thought. But no, not really. Like, yeah, Donald Trump told me. <laughs> right? right. You know? Somebody out there thinks you can do Somebody it. Somebody thinks I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so changing tactics a little bit. Um, so I recently faced a few scary for me athletic um, endeavors on a family vacation here in Oregon. And and once I overcame my fears, I was reminded how much I enjoy that slight buzz that comes with, you know, conquering nerves. And so do you have any advice for harnessing the positive power of jitters that can come before a race or even a challenging workout? Yeah. Um, I, th- You know, one thing to know is that it's that's another one where our perception of nerves changes how we feel about them and changes how we feel literally in our body. Um, so you know, one of the things you can think about before a race, if you're feeling that nervousness and really it's what's happening is you are tuning into what's happening in your body and labeling that as nerves. So Mm -hmm. if you think about like my heart's racing and I feel the butterflies, Oh God, I'm nervous. Um, and as soon as you have that nervous, there's this whole sort of emotional reaction that goes with that. And then once you've labeled it, that if you have a negative association with feeling nervous, that comes with it. So sometimes um, reframing that feeling of the of, of the actually what's physically happening, like reframing the feeling of the heart racing and the butterflies, and instead of labeling it as "Oh man, I'm nervous. I don't know if I'm ready for this," you go, "Oh my." 
my body's getting me ready to race. This is my body's giving me energy and getting me sharp and ready to go. So it's a, um, it can feel different. And in that way, you can sort of normalize the feeling of nerves that it's okay to have that, that that's a normal part of the process. And it's, um, you know, it's because it's something that is important to you. So for me, cause I used to, um, I really struggled with nerves before, um, before different things, like before snowboarding and before I used to race cars a long, very long time ago and would, (laughs) and, and like really struggled with nerves where it was like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up in my helmet. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I want to see, I want to see video of that. (laughs) I've got to change this. And I started to tell myself, um, you're, you're not nervous. You're excited. And it was like, ooh, yeah, I'm excited. Okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. And it just, that subtle reframe, oh my gosh, changed so much for me um, in those situations where it's like, oh, it's okay to feel this, really, is what it's, you're saying to yourself. And when I told myself, like, it's, it's, you're excited and, like, it's okay for your body to be feeling this, it also um, sort of tamped down the intensity of the nerves that I was feeling. So, um, so in that way of, of kind of reframing it, we can sometimes harness it and then, and use it. Um, so it's, you know, you don't necessarily want to get rid of that, um, those pre-race nerves, but you do want to figure out how to manage them. So, um, so that they're facilitative instead of debilitative. Like you don't want to be burning your, you know, you're about to go into a race. You don't want to be burning your matches because it's very stressful on your central nervous system. If you're at sort of that heightened, like, um, anxiety state. So you want to know how, you don't want to get rid of it, but you don't want to know how to manage it so that can, you can really use it to your benefit. Well, and draw it out a little bit. I mean, I think one thing that happens, like it happened to me when I was training for Ironman and, you know, even now that I'm kind of coming into the long runs of a half marathon training is I start dreading the long run or the long workouts around Wednesday, say, if I'm going to do it on a Saturday mm-hmm. and maybe dreading is the wrong word, but it's just, it consumes too much of my mental space. Yes. What You know, I mean, because once I get in motion, I'm fine, right? Like once I get yes. out the door and actually go and start the thing, I'm like, okay, I can do this, right? Yeah. It's just one foot in front of the other, one pedal down, whatever. But it's that like three or four days of like, is it going to go okay? And am I going to sleep well enough? And, you know, and yeah. all this stuff. And I think, you know, we've got a lot of women that are marathon training right now. I mean, how do you kind of control that central nervous system over the period of not just a morning, but a couple days. Yeah. I actually do, um, a pre, like I'll work through a pre-performance plan. So you, you can, you know, a lot of times we have this perception that your race starts when the gun goes off, but really it starts when you start thinking about it. And when you start thinking like, and when you start preparing and that might be different, like some people it's the night before some people it's Wednesday before. And so we kind of identify how to, well, what we do literally is create their pre-performance plan and we kind of break break these time periods into chunks. And usually it's like the day before, the night before, the morning of, an hour before, a half hour before. So we kind of identify what are those chunks of time that make sense leading up to your race. And then look at, in each of those time periods, what do you need to be doing? How do you ideally want to be feeling? And what do you need to be thinking in order to achieve that? So you, in in a moment when you're calm and collected, you have (laughs) identified for yourself, like, this is what I need to do to be optimally prepared and focused and confident going into my race or even going into a long run. Like sometimes I'll do it for training runs for some people too. So what you're doing basically is you're helping to rewrite 
the neural pathway that you've strengthened in your mind that's like, oh, it's Wednesday. It's time for me to start freaking out about my race. <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. the neural pathway that's, you know, kind of been strengthened over time. And, and, and it's true for a lot of athletes, like for a lot of runners and a lot of um, endurance athletes. It's the, that, um, you know, for a few days out, you know, for some people, it's a couple weeks out even where it's like you're just really taxing your body that whole time worrying about something and spending energy that you don't need to be spending. But sometimes yeah. you have to instruct yourself on how to spend that energy in order to build up that new neural pathway and and change that that habit, basically, in that pattern of thinking. Sure. So even if, even if it's something like, okay, so, you, so I take some time when I'm not, you know, thinking about the long workout, write out, you know, how I'm going to make it successful starting on if the workout's on Saturday morning, starting on Thursday night, you know, yeah. and then anytime I stress out before Thursday night or start thinking about it before Thursday night, you can just kind of go review the plan and just say, okay, this is when I get to start thinking about it. And then this is how I'm going to make it go well. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll have athletes literally grab their paper and go and they, they start to feel that nerves and they start to feel themselves spiral and they'll grab their paper and go, ah, okay, what do I need to be focusing on right now? So it's this great yeah. sort of visual trigger that's, that's, and also tells you like, this is what's important right now. Nothing else matters. This is what you need to be focusing on. Mm-hmm. And you can also give yourself permission to say, okay, you know, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing I always yeah. feel like when I start to stress out, it's like, this is wasted energy because First of all, I need it for the workout, and secondly, it's not doing anything but but making me spin, you know, making me crazy, you know. So I just it's it's like two things because I know I'm wasting it, and yet I don't know how to harness it, right, or yeah. stop it, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You gotta have, and the the plan is kind of the the wrench that you throw in that stops that wheel from spinning. Yeah, yeah. So when you pull that out, that's the wrench that kind of goes. Er, okay, Whew. okay. We're stopping the spiral. What do I need to focus on right now? Yeah. So when do you when do you get to give yourself slack? Right. Um, I mean, you know, women are pretty good at being hard on themselves. On ourselves, we're pretty good at self sabotage. And you know, I mean, is there a certain time like when you when you say to your athletes or your clients, like, okay, you know what, we're gonna take a step back from focusing yeah. on goals and focusing on races, and you know, let's just kind of enjoy the motion, enjoy the sport, enjoy the process? That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I, I, I try to talk about that with athletes before this happens, but if you're experiencing that, like you're feeling a little burnout and it's not really feeling fun, it's time to take a break. It's time to give yourself a break, um, and kind of figure out what is it that you need to, to balance out what's happening and why you're kind of feeling that way and feeling depleted. So, one of the times to give yourself a break is um, if you are suddenly experiencing more life stress, um, either, you know, with family or work or maybe injury, um, but there's some kind of additional stress in your life that's going to be stressing your central nervous system. Um, I always try to encourage athletes to balance that out with more recovery um, than maybe they want <laughs> or mm-hmm. are used to. And we'll kind of identify what that might look like. Um, but and one of the reasons that I encourage people to do that is because we know that through research, we know it, athletes, are, well, people in general, but athletes are more likely to be injured when they have an increase in day, daily life stressors, even mm. not just like huge, big life stressor events, but even just an increase in some of your daily life stressors. So, um, 
so I encourage, you know, that's one of the times I really have people to kind of tune into, you really need to pay attention now to giving yourself a break and maybe you need to sleep more or maybe you need to, um, you know, go take some time for yourself, you know, whatever it is that you can do to balance that out, um, to kind of give yourself, to give yourself a break. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I think I see, it's funny, this has been coming up a lot, like one of the things I see with, with women athletes in, in general, um, is, and really in women in general is we tend to be more of the caretakers. And so if anything is going to get put on the back burner, it's you taking care of yourself. So, um, Amen. Right. (laughs) So we need to like learn how to bring that to the front burner Mm -hmm. Um, and that that that's okay. That that doesn't mean you're a bad person or a bad parent or a bad wife or a bad anything. That it's it's okay for us to take that time to take care of ourselves or take that time to go train because I know a lot of people that feel very guilty about oh my gosh, when I'm training, that's time that I'm, you know, should be working or should be with my family, all the shoulds that we should on ourselves. So, um, that it's okay to do those things and it's okay to take a break. So sometimes with my athletes, when they're in their off season and maybe they're taking a break from their sport, I'll have them take a break from me too. Mm-hmm. Like take a break from the mental piece. Cause that takes a lot of energy kind of working on, on some of that, like, you know, the goal setting and, and some of that stuff. So sometimes we will be like, you have no goal right now. Your goal is to just, you know, no, no equipment, no, like, you know, no, take off your watch. You're not, we're not logging anything. Like just go out somewhere that you love and go run and don't pay attention to anything. Just, you know, enjoy yourself and, um, and get back to that kind of passion for it. So it's really important to not see those things as, um, luxuries or is something extra? If I have time, maybe I'll do that. Those need to be a part of your plan, your training plan. Go be aimless, right? Go, yeah, go. exactly. <laughs> go be directionless. Meander, yes. <laughs> so, so our, our last question touches on something that you were talking about there about injury. And it seems like a lot of injured athletes gain strength and wisdom from your book and, and your blog posts. And so what are your three best pieces of pieces of advice for mother runners who are dealing with a sidelining injury oh man we could do an entire show show yes yeah (laughs) but um gosh that's such a great question because um injuries are just they're they can just be so challenging they're just opportunities for growth aren't they Karen? yes (laughs) no they suck (laughs) i don't know if you can tell but i'm injured right now so sorry we touched no it's good it's good it's good it's good for me but um you know it's one of the things that hits so my three best one of the things is um really embracing the idea that now your sport um and you know everything that you were doing to train for your sport now gets transferred to recovering from your injury so it's almost like now recovering from your injury is your sport and what do you, are you doing everything you can in order to help your body heal cuz sometimes um you know sometimes we'll either do too much in our recovery like because we want so badly to get back that we push it and then end up prolonging how long we're injured or sometimes we don't do enough because we're just so 
frustrated and upset that we're injured that um, it's hard to get the motivation to to do the things you need to do to recover. So to really just kind of embrace that idea of like my recovery is now my sport and what do I need to do in order to perform to my potential, meaning let your body heal. Um, I think the other thing that's important during that time is to focus on what you can do and versus on what you can't do. Um, so you're injured in a way that means you can't run. It's very difficult to think the entire time about, the, the, I can't run. I don't want to do anything else. I want to be able to run. I, I can't do the thing I want to do. So to really look at, uh, well, I can still work on my core strength or I can work on my mental game or I can work on my upper body or I can walk in the pool. Like, what are the things that you can do? Because it helps you feel like um, the driver's seat or it, it helps you feel like you're back in the driver's seat and the steering wheel is in your hands again versus you're just along for the ride and this isn't the ride you want to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the wrong bus. yes, I think the the final one, oh, I just, I had two. Let's see. I don't know which one oh, to choose. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the final one is, um, is, is really to, you know, because stress prolongs our healing process to in any way that you can um, make sure that you're also finding some joy during this time in any way that you can, you know, whether that means like sometimes I'll give athletes homework to go watch a, you know, you need to go watch a stand-up comedian on Comedy Central for a half hour. Like anything you can do to, you know, to um, actually uh, make yourself laugh, then feel that, you know, get those endorphins and get that um, sort of joyful response to help counteract the stress you're feeling because you, um, you, that stress is going to prolong the, the healing process. So to really think about being with friends, getting the support that you need, um, making yourself laugh, listening to music, whatever it is that feels good for you to do to make sure you're doing that as well. Awesome advice. I mean, um, gosh, that was that was really helpful. And, and now I'm thinking that me watching um, Kimmy Schmidt on, on Amazon or whatever, <laughs> Netflix really helped me when I had my fractured ankle because I blew yes. through the entire series. Uh, <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> yeah. Funny thing is now I can, I'm, I think I will never be able to watch the second season because I'm like, I'm going to have like PTSD or something. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is depressing, not funny. Yeah. Uh, well, you have just been full of wonderful advice and thank you so much for sharing it with us, Carrie. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Bye-bye. Oh, Carrie was just a font of of great advice and and insight. Dim, I'm so glad you found her at that Training Peak Summit. Yeah, is it a font, F-O-N-T or F-A-U-N-T? Or F-O-U-N-T, like a fountain. Yeah, um, it, it's definitely, font F, the word F-O-N-T is, that that I think just means like typeface. All right, good good vocabulary lesson for the day. F-A-U-N-T is a lot of advice, <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah, no, she's awesome. She's, uh, I think, and I mean, just like, just taking a little piece of what will work for you mm-hmm. and implementing it, whether you're running hills or running a marathon. I mean, I think there's just mm-hmm. some really good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. I definitely thought so. Definitely thought so. So let's let's shuffle on over to our challenge corner. 
And today's comes from Mary Ra, who's in our marathon challenge. And it's a long comment, but it's worth reading the entire thing. And I really thought it applied well to um, to what we thought Carrie would say. And so indeed it did. So I'm going to um, just dive right in. Mary says, I had assumed that my long run this week would go smoothly and I could head into the taper feeling super confident about my first marathon on September 20th. It was a shit show, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Four stops for the porta potties in a neighborhood that is thankfully under construction. My feet hurt so badly I cried twice. It was supposed to be a 20 miler, but I called my husband at 18 and asked him to come and get me. I've never felt so vulnerable on a run. It was very, very humbling. My ice bath was even a hot mess. <laughs> I love that contrast. <laughs> the water I ran in the tub was too warm because I wasn't paying attention. And when I dumped two bags of ice in it, they promptly melted. All this <laughs> yeah. wah, wah. Um, all this before 9 a.m. And it was a beautiful day to run. 50 degrees, sunny, slight breeze, and all the smoke from the forest fires had cleared so I could see the mountains in the distance. Big sigh. I know where I went wrong. Fast food last night because we were traveling home from grandma's, a late bedtime, early morning, and the kickers. I try, and at first I thought she meant like her kids climbed into bed and were kicking her, but she means, I think she might mean shoes. I'm not sure exactly. Um, she well, says, The kickers are like the, and, and this oh, is what really kicked my oh, ass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I tried a different breakfast shake, wore a pair of shoes that are fairly new, and did not drink or eat anything until 10 miles into my run. Oh, Mary, yeah. Mary, Mary. Exactly. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. <laughs> I, I know better, and I was foolish, and I have learned my lesson. But the best thing is that I'm not super discouraged or scrambling to do another 20 to prove something. When I do the things I know I need to do during my run, it almost always works out okay. This is a good training plan, and if I take care of myself and do the work, it will be just fine. Not easy, but manageable and very meaningful. That's awesome. Not easy, but manageable and very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And that actually um, calls to mind uh, one thing that I meant to bring up with Carrie um, which I, you know, tweeted during her talk, but I, I love it. Um, you know, she said, if you are blessed enough to be an athlete for, you know, over a period of years, then you get to have a bad day. I mean, mm-hmm. if you get to live this awesome lifestyle that we get to live, you get to train for a marathon, you're going to have a crappy 20 miler. Like that's mm-hmm. just part of the deal. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think just accepting that and not trying to make it okay, you know, mm-hmm. or not trying to justify it or write it, but just be like, oh, that's part of the deal because I get to train for this awesome marathon. And mm-hmm. it sounds like Amy or Mary has really embraced that as well. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, and I was so delighted because a song I just discovered yesterday um, seemed to fit perfectly with it. And um, it is by Jess Glynn and is Don't Be So Hard on Yourself. I love I love that line. Everyone trips, everyone fails, so don't be so hard on yourself, girl. So I think I think that's a mantra right there. I think that might be my new power song, perhaps. I still have to go with uh, my fight song. Oh. I can't I can't get enough of Rachel still. <laughs> that is such still a that is song. such a divinity song. Oh my gosh, that's like right up there, you know, with the with the Sarah Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. It started with the, the rising. rising. Yeah. 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 There's a Exactly. Taking it to the man. Taking it, taking it. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, instead of doing the usual where you can find us, we are going to start talking about where you can 
actually truly literally in person find us and some of our upcoming appearances were um, i'm going to be at happy girls spokane in washington um we're going to have some mother runners representing us when when is happy girls spokane sarah that's the end of september um and that very same weekend is zuma cape cod and adrian martini from martini fridays on our blog she is going to be there along with um two bammers michelle and erica helping her out and then on the weekend of um, October 10 and 11, you and I are going to both be at races, but um, in separate places. Um, tell the folks where you're going to be, Dim. The old divide and conquer trick. Yes. Um, I'm going to be in Hartford at the Hartford Marathon. Super mm-hmm. excited to to see that. Yeah, and I am going to be at the Chicago Marathon. So, woo, woo, that's yeah. our first major, Sarah. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I was um, maybe with an asterisk because I was at um, Boston with one of our former partners, um, but it was I was kind of tucked away in a corner. So this is an actual yeah. another mother runner booth. And we yeah, no, this is this is our first. This, this is our debut. This I is mean, our that, that debut. was yeah. yeah. We yeah, were an understudy is, before. This is our first starring yeah. role at a we, major. We were an apprentice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and because you guys picked, uh, I'm unfortunately not going to be there, but um, but you guys picked a really good booth, right? So we're easy to find. Yes, and, and a, uh, in a high traffic aisle, so um, with the corner location, so it is a premier um, prime location. So very excited. Uh, now that. we're getting all expo nerdy on you, but that's you know <laughs> we're, we're learning the rules of the tr- the tricks of the trade with the expo yeah yeah um, yeah so and we yeah, will... so those are kind of our first couple stops and we'll we'll share some more as we go but i mean we're excited i've got a couple more zuma races coming up right and mm-hmm. um yeah. a lot in oregon right yes yes exactly yeah the pacific northwest hitting it up hard and and um yes you're going to be at um two zuma races um you're going to be at colorado springs and nashville which are both debut locations for zuma uh, or they're returning to colorado springs so yeah we have an exciting fall and um early winter plan and we'll be sharing with those on future podcasts you can find all our where to find us on our website anothermotherrunner.com if you can't um, stop by and shop with us in person you can go to our store site which is motherrunnerstore.com uh, you can ask us about all this on twitter we're at the mother runner maybe see some of it on instagram at the mother runner and um, many happy miles to you relax your hands relax your face and breathe